Sambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast, bringing you true crime from around the world. I hope you're well. Look, sorry for the delay in getting this episode out, but I have been quite ill for the last month or so. Tonight, we have a crazy case, a case that would terrify a community for months until finally the perpetrators were apprehended. Now, references tonight uh, is a book called The Hillside Stranglers, and that's what it's all about. The Inside Story of the Killing Spree that Terrorised Los Angeles by Darcy O'Brien. The Sacramento Bee, The Morning News, The Herald News, Indianapolis Star, Beacon Journal, The LA Times and a little bit from Court Records. Okay, now (laughs) I just want to give you a bit of a trigger warning on that book, The Hillside Stranglers. It does depict the attacks on the girls and women in extreme detail. So just be warned. And I'm talking about extreme detail. Okay, so this case is one of the most terrifying you're ever going to hear about. Even though the perpetrators, especially one of them, had a long history of domestic violence, including rape, along with other crimes, it all seems to come to a frenzied head for a few months at the end of 1977. So, the first of these scumbags is Angelo Buono, born October the 5th, 1934, in Rochester, New York. At age five, his parents divorce and he moves in with his mother and sister to Glendale, California. By the time he's 14, Buono gets off telling his friends how he sodomizes and rapes girls and starts calling his mother whore and cunt. By 16, he's getting into trouble, sent to reform school where he escapes and ultimately They catch him. In 1955, at age 20, he gets his 17-year-old girlfriend, Geraldine, pregnant. She gives birth to a son, Michael Lee, on January the 10th, 1956. Now, he'll marry Geraldine and then leave her less than a week later, refusing to pay child support, and then he divorces her. Now, this will be a bit of a common theme with Angelo Buono, Straight away in 1956, at 22, Buono meets and knocks up Mary Castillo. They will eventually get married and have four kids. Now, this marriage lasts around eight years, and it's characterised by increasing violence and sexual depravity by Buono, and rumours he raped his younger daughter, Grace, who was only two years old. Even though Mary filed for divorce, she tries to reconcile with Buono only to be handcuffed and threatened with a gun. Now, she doesn't continue to try and reconcile after that, you can imagine. Now, most of the violence over those years towards Mary was done in front of the children. Buono didn't care. Now, Buono moves almost instantly to his next major relationship, 25-year-old mother of two, Nanette Campina. As usual, Buono abuses Nanette, but she's too terrified to leave him. She reckons by leaving, it's just a death sentence. Now, they'll have two kids together, bringing Buono's tally to eight kids. By 1971, Buono is raping Nanette's 14-year-old daughter, saying that she needed breaking in. He brags to friends that he turned her over to his sons for their pleasure. Nanette takes the chance and flees with the kids interstate. 
Jesus Christ. For the next few years, Buono lives in a share house and he's busted wanking off the schoolgirls while perving at them using binoculars through his bedroom window. He gets, or gives himself, the nickname the Italian Stallion. He moves into his own place at 703 East Colorado Street, Glendale, California in 1975, opening up an auto upholstery business at the front, and he ends up living in a house at the back. Now, you can check this address out in Google Maps, right? Stick a star on that location as it will be giving as I'll be giving you more locations throughout the podcast so you can see where everything's happening. So, it's about this time where the second scumbag comes into the picture, Kenneth Aliseo Bianchi. He was born May the 22nd, 1951. Now, he'll be around 24 years old when he joins his cousin Angelo Buono from Rochester, New York. Bianchi's birth mother was a drunken sex worker that gave him up for adoption weeks after he was born. He was a troubled child, he pissed his pants and was a pathological liar. He was highly intelligent, but very lazy. In 1970, Bianchi married his childhood sweetheart, but that lasted less than a year. He held various menial jobs after dropping out of college, and if he could steal from his workplace, he would, especially from the jewellery store he worked at, giving the stolen items to sex workers or girlfriends just for presents. He had plenty of fake qualifications he kept with him as he thought of himself as a bit of a psychologist. He also had a stolen police badge. He borrowed money from his mother as a deposit on an older Cadillac. Now, before he meets up with Buono, Bianchi lives in Rochester, right? Where between 1971 and 1973, there were the infamous alphabet murders, where three girls were murdered, two near where he was working. He was a suspect, but he was never charged. Okay, so Kenny Bianchi and Angelo Buono, they get along pretty well. Buono's the more serious, less talkative one, whereas Bianchi is full of energy and he just talks too much. Like maybe a bulldog and a, I don't know, a Labrador. Honestly, don't know if that's a good comparison. But Bianchi can get on Buono's nerves at times, but Buono knows he's pretty much the dominant one in the relationship and he can get Bianchi to do pretty much whatever he wants and he knows he's going to do it. Bianchi, being relatively lazy, needed a way to get some real income and he doesn't want to do too much work to get that income. Buono has a plan to get a couple of women and pimp them out from the upholstery shop bedrooms out the back. Bianchi had met a young budding actress called Sabra Hannon at a party recently and he contacted her. Now she was out of state but Bianchi told her he'd pay her 500 bucks a week to do modelling and was happy to pay for her flight to LA and take the fare out of her wages. Now she agrees, she thinks it's modelling and flew back into town. Bianchi picked her up from the airport and on the way to a motel he offered her a drink. Sabra soon fell asleep from the sedative that he'd put in that drink, but she was able to wake up enough to get to the hotel room. Here she slept and Bianchi tried to have sex with her, but she refused. She was awake enough at least to refuse. Bianchi backed off and the next day took her to Buono's upholstery shop where she was given $100 to buy clothes. Now over the next few days, they soften her up a bit. They offer her a nude modelling job. They say normal work was very slow at the moment. 
They told her she'd have to do a demo shoot so that they could send to clients. Now, she sort of ended up agreeing and Buono took nudes of her. A few days later, Buono told her that that job had fallen through. So, Buono told Sabra that if she were to go anywhere, she had to tell him, just in case a job came through. She ended up breaking this rule once by going down the road to the shop to buy clothes with that 100 bucks he'd given her. Now, when she got back, Buono and Bianchi, they were waiting. They were angry. They beat her. They raped her and told her that she would be turning tricks in the spare bedroom from now on. And if she tried to escape, they would track her down and kill her. Now, she was terrified at this stage and she submitted to all their demands. She was pretty much freaked out because they were able to describe what she did down at the shops, how she met someone, got a lift down there, the whole thing. She was thinking, geez, these guys are just <laughs> freaky. They're watching me. Now, to start with, Buono would show some of his upholstery customers Sabra's nude photos and tell them they could have sex out the back. Word soon spread and Sabra was working full-time having sex with Buono's customers. Not only was the income from pimping out Sabra a welcome financial bonus, of which Bianchi and Buono split and Sabra got nothing, but the upholstery business grew as well as the customers became aware of the special services on offer. Now, in order to build up the business out the back, Buono offered a deal with Sabra that if she could get a girl to replace her, she would be set free. Now, Sabra, she had a friend, Becky Spears, and told her there was modelling work to be had. When Becky arrived, she was forced into prostitution as well, and of course, Sabra wasn't let go. Eventually, Becky met a lawyer called David Wood who helped her escape. Now, Sabra ended up running off a few days later, so Buono and Bianchi had lost their income, and Bianchi started missing payments on the caddy. They ended up getting another woman to work for them called Jennifer Snyder. They also organised to buy a list of potential customers, or what was called a trick list, from a sex worker called Deborah Noble. Now, Buono insisted it should be an out-call list and not an in-call list, as he didn't want random Johns turning up to his house at all hours. When Deborah turned up with this list of 175 names she charged $175 for, she was accompanied by a friend and fellow sex worker, Yolanda Williams, or Washington, which was her working name. Yolanda happened to mention which part of town she worked from, the north side at Sunset Boulevard. Now, Jennifer, she was given the task to call through this list of names on the trick list. And it was soon apparent that the list wasn't an outcall list as all the customers wanted to go to see her at the upholstery shop rather than her to go and see them. Now, when Jennifer told Buono and Bianchi, they were pissed off and Bianchi wanted to take the anger out on Jennifer, she's the messenger, by killing her. Now, Buono settled him down by telling him, telling him that murdering her would be quickly traced back to them and they should go and get Deborah Noble, the one who sold them the list. The problem was, they had no real idea where she worked, but they did know where Yolanda Washington worked. They tracked Yolanda down on the 17th of October 1977. Bianchi flashed his stolen police badge at her and quickly handcuffed her and got her in the back of the car. As they drove down the freeway, Bianchi raped her in the back of the car and then strangled her. 
Bianchi slid a ring off Yolanda's finger, keeping it for his girlfriend, Kelly. Now, they dumped her naked body at 6510 Forest Lawn Drive. And that's just outside of Forest Lawn Cemetery. And it's across the road from the Warner Brothers lot. And it was in plain view. The next morning, Yolanda's body was found and police called in. Detective Frank Salerno of the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department was called to the scene and immediately he saw the ligature marks around her neck and marks on her wrists where she'd been restrained. Yolanda was a sex worker. Her murder wasn't newsworthy in a town that had several murders daily. I mean, in researching this, Yolanda's name doesn't appear in newspapers until November the 24th. By then, there's going to be 10 suspected slayings. When Buono and Bianchi went over the process for kidnapping, raping and then murdering Yolanda, they knew they were going to do it again, but decided it was just too difficult to do it in the backseat of the car. They discussed abducting the next woman and then bringing her back to the upholstery shop and raping and killing her there. They could then take the body and dump it. This way, meant that there was probably less chance of them being seen. You can imagine if somebody's in the back of the car getting driven around the freeway, you get pulled over or whatever. They're going to do it back at Bianchi's auto upholstery shop. Then on the 31st of October, 77, the cousins picked up 15-year-old Judith Lynn Miller, a runaway and sometimes sex worker, outside Carney's on Sunset Boulevard. She was back, taken back to Buono's place, raped by the cousins, and then strangled. They then drove a body to 2844 Alta Terrace La Crescenta Montrose, where they dumped a naked body on the ice plants covering the sidewalk. Now, her body was discovered early that morning by the homeowner. Detective Frank Salerno was also called in on this case. Now, he noticed the similarity of this murder and the one of Yolanda a couple of weeks before. By the look of the scene, he theorised her body was placed in this position by two people, not one. Now, some of these ice plants had been kicked up. It was almost as if one of the people carrying Judith's body had half-tripped getting over the curbing. Judith also had ligature marks on her wrists, ankles and neck. Now, the ice plants, if you don't know what they are, they're sort of those little shrubby type plants you might get on footpaths or sidewalks but you can look it up on google then just five days later november the 5th 21 year old waitress Alyssa teresa or Lisa caston she was last seen leaving the restaurant where she worked now bianchi and buono pulled the car over and presented these fake police badges she reluctantly got in their car for questioning about a burglary they told her they would take her to the police station, but instead they took her back to Buono's shop, bound her, raped her, and then strangled her. They dumped her body near the Chevy Chase Country Club in Glendale. Now, with as with the other murders, investigators noticed she had ligature marks on her wrists, ankles, and neck. Now, she hadn't been dumped. Her body also had been placed. The one difference, however, from all these other murders was that Lissa wasn't a runaway or sex worker and she didn't do drugs. She was a talented dancer. She worked at a restaurant and part-time at her father's company. Then on to November the 13th, 12-year-old Dolores and Dolly Sapita and 14-year-old Sonia Marie Johnson. 
Now, they'd been shopping at Eagle Rock Plaza on Colorado Boulevard. Now, they took a bus home, getting off at York Boulevard and North Avenue 46. Now, a kid on the bus, he sees them talking to possibly two men in a large car. He can see it in the big bus mirror. Now, in that large car, of course, it was the cousins. They took both the girls back to the shop where they brutally raped and strangled them. They dumped their bodies on a hillside near Dodger Stadium. They were found a week later on the 20th by boys checking out a pile of rubbish. Now, first, they thought they were mannequins, but then another boy checked it out and raised the alarm. Now, on the same day that Dolly and Sonia's bodies were found, 20-year-old Christina Weckler was found on a hillside at Rannans Avenue and Warona Street between Glendale and Highland Park. Christina was an honour student at the Pasadena Arts Centre of Design. She was last seen along the 810 block of Garfield in Glendale. Her naked body had the same five-point ligature marks as the other victims, but she had green streaks in her arms and puncture wounds. She wasn't a drug user. Now, it would be found that these green streaks was because Windex was injected into her arms as Buono and Bianchi experimented on new ways to torture and kill their victims. She'd been raped and strangled. Not only was she injected with Windex, a plastic bag was put over her head and the gas pipe from the oven, which was getting installed, wasn't fully installed yet, was disconnected and put inside the bag. The bag was then tightened and then opened several times to keep her alive until she finally passes away. So, this is on the 20th of November, 1977. Seven bodies have been found dumped around the Glendale area Not all the bodies that will be found in L.A. during this time are Buono and Bianchi's. You see, there are dozens of serial killers operating in the area at the time. Now, 17-year-old Catherine Kimberly Robertson was last seen on the 16th of November at the beach in Santa Monica on Pico and Ocean Boulevard. Kathleen liked to hitchhike. Her body was found the next day strangled in a parkway in the L.A. Wilshire area. Then there was 18-year-old sex worker Jill Barkham. She was last seen on Sunset Boulevard and her body was found at Franklin Canyon Drive and Mulholland Drive. Her murder would be attributed to the serial killer Rodney Alcala. So, just three days after those three bodies were found on the 20th of November, the badly decomposed body of 28-year-old Evelyn Jane King was found dumped in a bushy area near Griffith Park, close to the Los Feliz off-ramp of the Golden State Freeway. Now, she wanted to be a famous actress in Hollywood. She sometimes studied at the Celebrity Scientology Centre. She was last seen on the 9th of November. Her severely decomposed body showed signs of rape and torture. She'd also been strangled. After this, investigators created a task force of initially 30 officers from the LAPD, the Sheriff's Department and the Glendale Police Department. They were looking for two men. They dubbed the Hillside Stranglers. Now, the wider media thought there was only one perpetrator. The cops knew there were two involved. Another name, actually, the media gave the serial killer was the Stop and Go Strangler because they'd stop a car dump the body, and then they go. On the 29th of November, the naked body of 18-year-old Lorraine Ray Wagner was found dumped along the roadside on the west side of Mount Washington 
1217 Cliff Drive in Glassell Park. She lived with her parents and was a business student. She'd left home at 7pm the night before to go see her boyfriend and watch TV. She was never late home. She left her boyfriend's house at 9.45pm and drove her Mustang back home. An elderly neighbour, Burla Stouffer, saw Lauren pull up out the front of her place after a dog started barking and a car with two men in it pulled in behind. Now she saw some commotion and then Lauren was put in the back of the other car and it drove off. The neighbour, she didn't contact police or Lauren's parents. The next day, when Lauren was still not home, but her car was out the front, police were called. When they interviewed the neighbour, she told them she saw what happened from her window. But Detective Grogan thought that for the detailed description she provided, that she was possibly outside in the front yard, just metres away from where Lauren had been abducted, behind a bush. Now, she could have yelled out. But she didn't. Now, she ended up telling police that she was having an asthma attack and was frozen with fear as she'd been raped when she was young. She described the men as one of them had bushy hair, the other was taller and younger. The car was dark colour with a white top. Bula got a call the day after Lauren's body was found. Now, this call was from a man who said, Are you the lady with the dog? Now, he goes on to threaten her not to say anything about what she saw. Now, Detective Grogan hoped that they would come back to the house. He'd had security detail watching the house, but he knew that they probably wouldn't. The cousins had taken Lauren back to the shop, tortured her with electrocution. They'd raped her and then, again, strangled her. Now, at this stage, if you put all the pins on the map where I've said the bodies were found, in the middle, you would find 703 East Colorado Street, Glendale. Buono's combined residence and the auto upholstery shop. Two weeks later, on the 14th of December, the naked body of 17-year-old sex worker Kimberly Diane Martin was found at 2006 North Alvarado in Silver Lake on a deserted hillside. Now, Kimberly joined an agency. Now, she joined it because she didn't want to work the streets because of the recent stranglings. Now, Bianchi called the agency from the public library and booked a girl to come meet him at the apartment at an apartment at 1950 Tamarin, Hollywood. Now, he knew that was empty because he'd called a real estate agent to go have a look at the place. While he was there, he unlocked the backsliding door. When Bianchi and Buono were at the library calling this escort agency, Bianchi made the call while Buono stalked this woman looking for books. He was being creepy, following her around so she could see him. And when she did see him, he just stared at her. Now, she got uncomfortable and left. Now, when Bianchi's using this payphone at the library, he's got to give a number to the agency to be called back. Now, he gave the payphone number and the escort agency, they actually asked him if he's using a payphone because the number started with a nine. Now, Bianchi just told her, no, he's not that hard up that he's using a payphone. And the agency's not so much believed him, believed him, but just sort of didn't worry about it too much. Now, when he did get a call back and his escort was booked, the cousins went into the parking lot where they saw that woman that Juana had been stalking. Bianchi thought it'd be fun to freak her out by going up to her window and just staring at her. Now, 
They ended up taking a Mustang from the shop that was being worked on rather than the caddy, as it may have been noticed from previous abductions. Now, they parked it in the basement of the car park at 1950 Tamarind, and they went in the unlocked sliding door of the apartment. Now, they waited for Kimberly, who was using the name Donna. When she arrived and went in the room, they pulled a police badge out, handcuffed her, and they took her out the front door. Now, she ends up having this big struggle. There's all this commotion, and they end up having to force her back into the room. Now, other residents, they heard this struggle, but they did nothing. They take her into the basement, put her in the back of the car, and they take her back to the shop. Here, she's raped, strangled, and they dump her body as I said before, 2006 North Alvarado in Silver Lake. Police interviewed the escort agency. Now, they gave them the number of the payphone, which, of course, is at the library. They also interviewed library staff and apartment residents. The apartment residents, they did tell police they heard the screams, but once it stopped, they didn't worry about it anymore. The next day, the cousins find out Donna's real name is Kimberly Diane Martin from the newspapers. Now, Bianchi, he loves the fact that his crimes are getting media attention. He just loves it. But they decide maybe they've got to stop for a while. Kimberly Martin had been a close call. Now, Buana was getting the shits with Bianchi. He'd been kicked out of his apartment and was hanging around hoping to move back in. Then Bianchi wanted to join the police. He even went on an LAPD ride-along. Now, this is provided for potential recruits. And now, this was just three days after killing Kimberly. While on the ride-along, he asked the officers to show him the locations of the strangler body dumps, but they didn't know where they were. When Buono finds this out, he is absolutely pissed off because he's now thinking his dickhead cousin of his is going to open his mouth about something and draw attention. And at this stage, Banky, he also loses his job because he has too many sick days off for this fake cancer treatment that he says he's having. The boss checks up, finds out he doesn't have cancer. Then Bianchi got the caddy repossessed because the women they abducted as sex workers were gone, so he's got no real income. Now, things are really getting strained between the cousins. They take a break from raping and murdering. Then on the 16th of February 1978, 20-year-old Cindy Lee Hudspeth, who'd been given a business car from Wano for car upholstery when she was working at a cafe, decided to drop in to get new floor mats made for her brand new orange Datsun. Now while she was talking to Wano about getting them made, Bianchi walks in and he likes what he sees. Now, it was late, and most shops were closing around this time. Cindy just happened to be passing by on her way to work her night job at the college. Now, she mentions to Buano that she wanted a new job with more money to go study at college, not just work there. Now, Bianchi spoke with Buano on the side and asked if they should do it. Now, Buano agreed and told Bianchi to say that he's got this list of jobs in the house to lure her out the back. Now, no one knew she was there because, like I said, she just happened to be driving by, remembered the car that she'd been given and decided to come in. She's got a brand new car. She just wants some nice uh, floor mats for it to protect it. They end up raping and strangling her. Now, in her car, they found one of Buono's businesses' card, which they were able to throw out. 
They put Cindy's body in the boot of a car. Bianchi drove it to the Angeles Crest Highway, followed by Buono in a customer's Mustang. And when they got to the location that Bianchi had been to previously, they pushed a car over the edge of the cliff near a hiker's path. It would be seen by a helicopter pilot the next day, and police would find her smashed up car with her naked body in the boot, or the trunk. So, we have this task force that started with around 30 officers. This will grow to nearly 200 and a computer system would be used to organise all the tips, the evidence and anything else in relation to the case. But this didn't help the investigation at all. With thousands of phone calls coming in from the public being logged, these would all need to be triaged. There was a huge reward and this alone attracted many calls. Plenty of people are calling in saying it's their ex or their husbands, and even crazy people confessing that they are the hillside strangler. All these need to be filtered out so any actual leads with any value could be checked out. Now, with the volume of calls, one particular caller was brushed off. Jan Sims had interrupted a potential kidnapping of a young woman. She pulled a car up when she saw two guys trying to force this woman into a car. Now, she reported it straight away. She gave detailed descriptions of the two men and their car. You see, she used to be a school teacher, so she took notice of things. Now, the car stood out as well. This was an Excalibur kit car. Now, Buono had put this together himself and had recently finished it. Now, this is a kit car styled on a 1928 Mercedes-Benz SSK Roadster, and it sticks out like dog's balls. Now, the officer taking her report said, Oh, lady, did she really expect him to believe that two guys would try to abduct a girl in broad daylight from a crowded Burbank street in a fancy sports car? Did she realise how many calls they were getting about the Hillside Strangler? Everybody's brother is the Hillside Strangler. She should go home and sleep on it. Later, Jan sees the car parked in Colorado Street, Glendale. Now, that's Buono's shop address. She reports it straight away, but again, she's brushed off and told not to come back, even though she'd been approached by one of the kidnappers in the recent past and she'd been quite scared of the guy. Now, if only this lead had been investigated, Bianchi and Buono may have been apprehended earlier. In another incident, when Kimberly Martin had been called out by Bianchi from the Climax Escort Service, well, when she didn't return in the normal time, the agency called an organisation called CATS, or California Association of Trollops. Now, this is a guild for sex workers to lobby for legislation and offered legal services to its members. A Dr. Lois Lee received a call around 11pm informing her that Kimberly hadn't returned from her 9pm call. Now the agency gave Dr. Lee the number they'd been given. Now she traced it to the library and then raced over to Unit 114-1950 Tamarin to look for Kimberly. Now Dr. Lee found a car but also found the apartment was empty. Dr. Lee called the cop straight away but was told that she hadn't been missing for 24 hours. And get this, she was only a prostitute, so nobody cared anyway. Jeez. So, Dr. Lee goes down to the cop shop in person and demands action. The cop on duty calls the LAPD task force headquarters, 
but they don't get to the apartment until 1.30am. By that time, Kimberly's body had already been dumped. Now, one thing that does stand out in all these murders that Detectives Salerno and Grogan are investigating is that some of the bodies, like that of Kimberly Martin, were dumped in places that were quite difficult to get to. And you'd have to know the area quite well to even think about dumping a body there. It's sort of like going into one of your suburbs where you live that have all these inner small streets. Why would you go all the way in there and dump a body? You just go out to the bush, dump one out the side of the highway or something. Why are these people going into these areas? So it was likely, at least, that one of the killers was a long-time local maybe a cop, or maybe a taxi driver. So getting back to the tensions between Buono and Bianchi. Well, I'm not going to go into their relationship much, but Bianchi has his ex-girlfriend, Kelly, that he got pregnant. And she gives birth to a son on the 23rd of February, 1978. But she doesn't want him back. He can visit his son occasionally, but she's fed up with him being irresponsible and unable to keep a job or earn an honest living. Back in L.A., the hillside strangler had gone quiet. Well, Kelly goes back to Bellingham, Washington, which is a three-hour flight or about a day's driving from Glendale, California. But Bianchi kept on Kelly, and she ended up taking him back on the proviso that he moved from L.A. to Bellingham. So in May of 1978, he did just that. But just before he left... He had a visit from the cops in regards to a report by his former flatmates. Now, they said he had a police badge on him. When the officers asked him about it, Bianchi denied he had one, and that was it. The cops just left. Now, at the time, the investigators thought it could be a fake cop that's one of these hillside stranglers. Then, his current girlfriend, this is Bianchi's current girlfriend, her mum... Wanda Kellison, called the Hillside Strangler Task Force on him, saying he was a strange guy, he was always talking about the Strangler case, and they should just go and check him out. Now, they did do a check on his driver's licence, and on one of the addresses listed was 809 East Garfield Avenue. Now, if they had been the ones checking his driver's licence out, directly connected to the investigation they would have realised this is where Christina Weckler and Cindy Lee Husbed had lived. Well, they lived next door anyway. The coppers tracked him down. They asked him some questions like, had he been in jail? Had he been linked to law enforcement? He just calmly denied everything. They were pretty satisfied and they left. So that's just another example of having too many leads to follow. You've got these mums upset about their daughter's boyfriend choices and you have to have officers not familiar with the case chasing these leads up. Anyway, Bianchi gets a job at Whatcom Security Agency in Bellingham as a security guard. Shortly after, he starts work at Fred Meyer Super Shopping Centre. It's here he meets co-worker 22-year-old Karen Mandick. Now, Karen was studying dance at Western Washington University's Fairhaven College. Her job at Fred Myers helped her to top up the money her parents gave her for her studies. By November, Bianchi is back at Whatcom Security, promoted to patrol captain. He also applies to become a reserve deputy for Whatcom's County Sheriff's Department, and he's attending classes during the week to learn all about being a cop. 
Now, Banky's living with Kelly and baby son with this stable, pretty well-paid job, but he just can't help himself. He needed to kill again. He'd been able to outwit the LA cops. He thought he was always the smartest person in the room, so why not continue what he and his cousin were doing before, except alone? And he did. In his position as patrol captain, Banky had a good overview on what properties and businesses Watkin were providing security for. He would steal what he could from homes and businesses he protected, which were often, some of them were only summer holiday homes, right? They were pretty big homes, nice mansion-like homes, but they were only inhabited during the summertime. He'd store all his plunder in his garage at home. Now, he noticed that they were protecting a property at 334 Bayside Road, Bellingham. Now, this was owned by William Catlow, a retired executive, and he's holidaying Europe, in Europe with his wife. Now, from the road, all you can see is this hedge, if you have a look on Street View. But over the hedge, there's this house on a hillside looking out to Chuckanut Bay. By house, I mean mansion. Mansion-type house. It's a very wealthy area. Bianchi comes up with a plan to lure his prey to the vacant house where he can rape, torture, and whatever his victim then as before, just dump them somewhere. His own personal kill without the aid of his cousin Buono. He contacts Karen Mandy. He knows she's always looking for some extra money. But her roommate, who's also studying dance at Western Washington University's Fairhaven College, 27-year-old Diane Wilder, answers the phone as Karen's out. Diane leaves a handwritten note for Karen that read, Kenny Bianchi called. When Bianchi does get in touch with Karen, he asks her if she's interested in house-sitting a property for two hours for $100 while the security alarm system was being repaired. Now, Karen accepts, and Diane is also asked to come along. Two hours to sit in a luxury house for 100 bucks each. It's just a no-brainer for a student on limited funds, and but she's told not to tell anyone about the gig as he didn't want the owners to find out. So on the 11th of January 1979, this was the day that Bianchi had set out as the house-sitting day. Karen and Diane were to turn up at the house at 7pm. Now, I'm going to say 7pm. I also have sources that say 9pm, but 7pm makes more sense to me. On the Wednesday before, Bianchi calls the Sheriff Reserve's office saying he wouldn't be able to make Thursday night classes. He said he had to teach a class himself at the security company he worked for. He checked out the Bayside Road house during the day and decided the basement was probably the best place to do his killing and he leaves a length of cord there ready. Now, Kenny drove to the house in his Watkins security pickup he used for patrols. He told his work he needed the truck that night to put it in for repairs. Just before 7pm, Karen and Diane turn up in her Mercury hatchback, a green one. Bianchi met them at the front of the house and asked if Karen would come in first so he could turn on the lights and just check things out. He told Diane he'd only be a minute. Now when they entered the house, Bianchi ushered Karen down the stairs into the basement. Now once at the bottom, he wraps the cord he'd left earlier around her neck and strangles her. He quickly went back up the stairs to the front of the house to get Diane. Now, once inside the house, he shoved her down the stairs and strangled her also, straight away. Now, this is a bit wishy-washy here. Normally, he would have raped them before killing them 
and seeing both of the bodies were clothed, he sort of lost his appetite to strip them and have sex. So he just wanks himself on them. And that was more out of habit rather than having the urge to do it. Now, I'm thinking that he did attempt to rape them, but maybe he couldn't because Buono wasn't there. I don't know, but we'll get onto that a bit later on why I think that. He dragged them one by one to Karen's Mercury Bobcat hatchback, placing them in the back. He then drove the car in the rain to an undeveloped cul-de-sac in Willow Court North. Now, that's about a mile just down the road and around the corner. He half attempted to make it look like a car accident. He then walked back to the house. Now, normally with the help from Buono, they could have both driven a car to the dumping location, left one car and the bodies, then driven back in the other car. Now, being alone, Bianchi couldn't take the bodies too far away because of this, because he ended up wanting to leave the car there and walk back. Now, it wouldn't be long at all before Karen Mandic would be noticed missing. She told her manager at Fred Meyer she would take an extended break, but would be back. When she hadn't returned, he got worried and called the Western Washington University Security Office if they knew Karen's whereabouts. Now, this was before midnight, about 11.30. Now, one of her friends knew about this housing job Karen being offered. He'd actually asked if he could come along with Karen, but she knocked him back. So this friend and the manager meet up. They go to Karen's house. They go to the Bayside Street address, and they go anywhere else they might find Karen or her car. Now, when they couldn't find anything, they end up calling the cops. The cops, in turn, call Whatcom Security, who contacted Bianchi. He tells his boss he was at the Whatcom County Sheriff's Office Reserve Unit meeting where they were doing lessons and that he didn't even know a Karen Mandic. The cops then called the commander of the reserve unit to verify Bianchi's story. Now, this officer tells him that Bianchi hadn't attended the meeting. He'd called in earlier advising he had to run a class at his own place of work at Whatcom. By 2.30am, so this is moving fast, the cops called Bianchi, he admits he hadn't attended either class and that he'd just taken a drive alone around the county. By morning, Karen and Diane had missed their morning classes. Police interviewed Karen and Diane's neighbours and searched their house, but they were nowhere to be found. Now, the cops did find the note with the 334 Bayside address and they found a hungry cat. A search of the Bayside Roadhouse showed nothing really out of the ordinary except wet footprints on the kitchen floor, which would be strange if there's no one at the premises. By 4.30pm, Karen's car was called in by a resident of Willow Road and police raced to the area. They found Karen and Diane's bodies stuffed in the back seat fully clothed. With the crime scene at Willow Court North being processed, Bianchi was called in by Whatcom Security to report immediately to the security shack at the port of Bellingham South Terminal. Now, when he arrived, Bellingham police took him into custody to interview him. Now, behind the security shack, metres away from Bianchi's work truck, they found Diane Wilder's coat stuffed in some pipes. Now, when pressed on when where, where he was the night before, Bianchi came up with confusing and contradictory alibis. The next day, investigators checked out Bianchi with the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department because of his Californian driver's license. And who, by chance, would they be put through to but Detective Frank Salerno? The address Salerno was given got his attention fast. 
First, Cindy Hutzbet and Christina Weckler lived in the same address and across the road, and the client Kimberly Martin visited also matched the address. So Frank flies up to Bellingham to have a closer look at this banky guy. Local detectives were gathering evidence. At Karen and Diane's place, they found that note in Diane's handwriting that Kevin Bianchi had called. They found that both girls' friends had mentioned they'd been told about the the job offered by Bianchi. In Karen's car, there was even a note with the address, 334 Bayside, 7pm, Can. That was written on it. There was also a small dent in the Mercury Bobcat's fuel tank. This matches a scrape on a rock at the Bayside house and a man had seen a Whatcom security truck in the area driven by a man that matched Bianchi's description. So a search warrant, this is so messy by doing the job by himself, isn't it? A search warrant served on Bianchi and a search of his place turns up more evidence. Not only did they find a lot of merchandise in his garage, most likely stolen from places he was patrolling as a security guard, but they also found a stash of jewellery. And two pieces stood out. A large turquoise ring, now this is probably taken from Yolanda Williams, and a gold ram's horn necklace that matched the one Kimberly Martin had. So, they take his clothing in for forensic analysis and they're able to book him on these possession of stolen property charges just to keep him in custody. Now, they inform the judge on his bail hearing that he was a suspect in this double murder of Karen and Diane, and so the bail set at $150,000, which nowadays is probably $600,000. Right, the FBI... They're analysing this evidence. They find carpet fibres on the clothing worn by Karen, Diane and Bianchi that night matches carpet at the 334 Bayside house. In the basement of 334 Bayside, head hairs that were found, they match Diane Wilder. A pube found in the basement stairwell, that matches Bianchi. It's one of Bianchi's pubes. Now, there were pubic hairs found on Diane's bodies. These also match Bianchi. The FBI, they also find traces of Diane's period blood on his undies. So this is where I think he's probably half tried to maybe rape the girls, but maybe thought that she was on a period, maybe he wasn't going to do it. I don't know. Things weren't looking good for Kenny Bianchi, and soon it would be looking just as bleak for his cousin, Angelo Buono and Islanders I hate to say this but we're going to have to go into part 2 because normally at this stage I could quickly go okay they got Kenny they got Angelo here's the court case of course they're guilty or else we wouldn't have a podcast here would we and that'd be it I could just finish this off in 5 minutes but this court case is and the way they get uh, Buono, sorry, I just said Bianchi Buono so many times tonight. I can, it's, it is driving me crazy. This court case and the rest of the evidence that they get on these guys, that deserves its own episode, all right? And also, I've got to talk to you about the crazy semen smuggling scheme. That it's Like I said, it's just still a lot of craziness to go on, all right? 
So that's going to be in part two next week. Okay. So I'd like to thank my patrons, past, present, and future, for keeping the island's lights on. If you want to throw a dollar my way, please check out patreon.com forward slash true crime island. Or if you just want to shout me a beer, you can donate to paypal.me forward slash true crime island. Free beer is always nice after the dumpster diving into these cases. Thank you so much. But can I ask you just maybe take some time to share the podcast with your friends or even groups on Facebook, whatever. The Island's one of the few truly independent true crime podcasts out there and commercial free. Best of all, it's free of charge to help the island out. Go to my website, truecrimeisland.com. You can find all your links to everything there. And that's about it. I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Fuck a lot.